Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to talk about energy today uh, and the energy sector in particular in China. And there's a very, very important connection with Africa that we'll get to. But let's talk about energy. And in part because for the Chinese, this is, uh, well, for every major country, and I'd say every country, energy is the lifeblood of their economy. But there's another angle in China which is so critically important. The Chinese economy continues to be one of the fastest growing economies in the world, even though it has slowed dramatically compared to what, say, 10, 15 years ago from growth rates that were above 10% to now 5 or 6%, depending on who you believe. But nonetheless, the Chinese are consuming vast amounts of energy. And they're having to import a lot of that from the Middle East. It's a lot of carbon-based energy that they're digging out from their own coal mines. The problem, though, for the Chinese is that a lot of this energy is posing two very, very critical problems. Number one is that they are literally choking to death on it. Uh, just last week, the air quality index in Beijing was over 500. Now, to give you some context, here in Ho Chi Minh City, we're oftentimes at about 87, 90, and that's considered the borderline of unhealthy. In San Francisco, unhealthy is somewhere in the range of, oh no, or the averages are somewhere in the range of 20 to 30. So when you're at 500, you're at a crisis point, and people are literally choking. The other area of energy is very interesting to explore, is that the Chinese import the vast majority of their oil from uh, the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. And a lot of that oil passes through the Straits of Malacca in Southeast Asia. Now, that's an interesting geography there because that's one of the choke points that if the United States was to get into a conflict with the Chinese, the United States could simply blockade the Straits of Malacca cutting off the Chinese from a vital energy supply. So what are they doing? The Chinese are moving as fast as possible to renewable energies. So they're, they're you know, basically becoming the leader in solar. Uh, they're pushing very hard for electrification of their automobile sector. And they're developing their nuclear sector in a very, very big way. China currently has about 37 nuclear reactors in operation. Really, this and this is a stunning number. I am the son of a nuclear engineer, so I've grown up around nuclear energy discussions. The Chinese are building 20 more nuclear reactors, so they're really almost doubling their nuclear capacity. And the goal is to raise China's nuclear contribution in the energy market from 2% today to 6% in 2020. Now, that's a 300% growth, which sounds like a lot, but when you compare Chinese nuclear energy as a, as a share of the overall energy market, 2 to 6% is really not that much compared to, say, 20% in the United States and 74% in France. But the one thing that we know is that nuclear energy is going to become a much more important part of their energy mix. And so the key question, Kobus, is where do they get the uranium from? They get the uranium from Africa, big surprise, um, and particularly uh, from Niger and from Namibia. At the same time, Africa is also playing an interesting new emerging role as a possible customer for Chinese nuclear reactors. So there's this, over the last few weeks, we've seen several uh, memoranda of, of understanding signed between African countries and Chinese authorities about exploring the possibilities of importing Chinese-designed, uh, essentially 
plug and play kind of nuclear reactors um, into into various African countries. So it, this the scene is going to develop a lot in the future. It's going to it's going to it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. But in terms of the purely where the uranium comes from, it comes from Africa and it comes from very underdeveloped corners of Africa. And it's one of the areas of natural resource extraction that we don't hear that much about. We talk a lot about timber, gold, oil, uh, copper, iron, you know, all of these other uh, minerals and raw materials. But uranium actually doesn't hit the radar that often. So that's why when we saw a working paper uh, on the China Africa Research Initiative site, and that's, of course, Kerry at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C., uh, China and uranium comparative possibilities for agency and statecraft in Niger and Namibia. Don't worry if you didn't understand the title. I didn't either. But we've got one of the authors of the paper, Peter Volberding, and also who wrote it with Jason Warner. I want to give him credit for that. Uh, Peter is joining us for the first time on the show. Welcome to the program, and uh, we're really excited to talk about uranium with you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think it's a very important topic. So. It, it is a very important topic. It's a topic that I have to be honest with you that I'm not too familiar with. Niger doesn't really pop up. The last time I think Niger really made international headlines <laughs> was that famous yellow cake, right? That was the during the Iraq War, the run-up to the Iraq War. But Niger doesn't really hit the headlines very often. Little known fact, Niger, of course, is the number one producer of uh, uranium in Africa, Namibia being the second. So I presume that's why you chose these two countries to focus on for your, your your very interesting paper. So why don't we start our discussion today, kind of having you just give us the overview of what the Chinese are doing in both Niger and Namibia. Yeah, of course. So as you, as you talked about, um, the Chinese demand for nuclear power uh, is, is exploding. I have um, in 2030 that they'll have their, their plans for over 130 nuclear reactors. Uh, and China's domestic capacity for uranium production simply comes nowhere close to meeting that. And what they've done is um, two of their companies, one CNNC and the other CGN, uh, has gone out in, into Africa and made large-scale investments uh, in, in uranium mines. And today they're they're ramping up production. The Husab mine is just or is just starting production right now, um, and is projected to to produce almost or in a few years about ten thousand tons of uranium per year. So they've invested uh, quite a bit of uh, of money. And actually, this Husab mine is the single largest uh, investment that that China has made uh, in Africa. Uh, roughly about two billion dollars have been spent already um, in the project, and it looks like they're trying to find other opportunities in, in both Niger and and Namibia. So, in the paper, um, you mentioned that in the in Niger's case, their their uranium industry has traditionally been very dominated by France, and mm-hmm. so you know, kind of the the history and legacy of European colonization in Africa is really clear in, in, in Niger, and also kind of French controlled neo-colonial kind of powers is, is is pretty is pretty explicit there. Um, so you know, kind of how what was the the hope when the Chinese came in? Uh, like what what kind of you know what what prospects did they have to 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 wrest a little mm-hmm. bit of control away from the French, and then how did the Chinese um, involvement? How, how did it end up? Well, so yeah, as you as you mentioned, the Arriva had a basically one hundred percent monopoly on all of Niger's uranium, uh, and when the Chinese had come in in about two thousand six, two thousand seven, to look at investments, um, it was really hoped, both in government and uh, and CSOs among civil society, that 
that this would really break the monopoly and really give sort of bargaining power to Niger. You know, they could have two two companies competing, uh, hopefully increase the price that they that they receive for uranium, increase the amount of investment, increase the number of jobs. Uh, and there was this real hope that, you know, when you get sort of, you know, any market, when you have two bidders, you as the, you know, as the provider will get more benefit from this. Unfortunately, um, a few years later, this did not happen. It's sort of the classic case of, you know, when people think about Chinese, um, you know, mineral extraction in Africa, you know, if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. Um, there was widespread environmental damage. Um, there was widespread reports of labor violation uh, at the Chinese mines. Um, and it simply did not materialize in, in sort of a kind of a large investment sort of way. They were projected to invest about $300 million dollars. Uh, in this in this mine called Azalik, uh, but this never materialized, at least in the case of Niger, and, and that was really a disappointment to to both politicians in, in Niger, civil society, um, and a lot of people that and that worked in economic development. Why do you think Niger didn't live up to the expectations? Was it the Chinese who didn't understand? Was it the Nigerians who weren't? Uh, didn't I mean? What I won't speculate. What were the reasons that you think that yeah. it didn't work out in Niger? Yeah, it's it's sort of both. Um, CNNC had some domestic. I'm sorry, CNNC is who um, is the China National Nuclear Company okay, Corporation, and, and that's the the large state owned the largest state owned nuclear company in China, um, and they've been traditionally the you know responsible for nuclear power and mining in in the Chinese context from about the 1960s. And and they had very little experience um, doing international investments. And this was really their first foray into into an international um, investment in in uranium production. And it appears that they were fairly uh, uh, underprepared for for the challenges that Niger presented, you know, it's a landlocked country, you know, relatively underdeveloped infrastructure, and there just simply wasn't enough money and planning for that. On the other hand, and this has been brought up a lot, the capacity of the, the Nigerian government was also uh, not that great. They had a tradition, or supposedly you're supposed to make uh, the mining contracts, for instance, public, but this has never been the case. Um, they also lack sort of the technical capacity um, to be able to, to negotiate a, a deal with, with the Chinese and to enforce sort of these labor and environmental regulations that they, they do have on the books legally, but, but were, were unable to, to enforce when the Chinese came. Um, and when when the, all of this came to a head, um, civil society started playing quite a, quite a prominent role in the Niger case, right? Yes. Yeah. The civil society has been fairly active because of Arriva, um, where they had aired their grievances um, and largely have gotten some concessions for for better pay from from the French. But but this really instigated, you know, because of the hope that China um, could provide such a such an opportunity for increased investment, increased jobs, that that sort of the disappointment in seeing that, well, actually, the outcomes oftentimes were worse than than what the French were doing, really galvanized civil society in, in Niger to, to start demanding, not really from the Chinese, but from their own government, um, you know, better conditions, you know, better enforcement of the regulations. So in your paper, you focused on two countries, Niger and Namibia. And you mentioned that there are vastly different experiences in both countries. So while it didn't work out that well in Niger, yes. uh, the story isn't quite the same in Namibia. Tell us about what happened in Namibia. 
Yeah, Namibia is is really the the shining example of, of when a Chinese investment can go perfectly well. They they bought it off of an Australian company. They paid a billion dollars approximately, um, and they've they've invested a lot in the what's now called the Husab mine uh, to to produce. Um, something that so far has really pleased the government officials, uh, investors, uh, and civil society and labor organizations in Namibia. And you really see uh, a really successful case of Chinese investment providing jobs for local, um, for locals, for local businesses, uh, and building a, building up an infrastructure for uh, uranium mining there. So, do you get the idea that they, uh, the, in the Namibian case, that they learned directly from the from the Nigerian example, or was it just two different companies with two different corporate structures and two different levels of preparation? Yeah, it's. I think part of it is Chinese companies are always aware of what their other competitors are doing uh, in in Africa, at least, and the China. So th- this one, CGN, comes from Guangdong. Guangdong province and really was a, a an energy provider. It wasn't a mining company. And this was their also first major investment abroad. And they were very careful to, to not make the same mistakes. And, and part of this was because of a different structure. They're, they're not sort of this, they're a much younger, much more market-oriented company. Um, and they really wanted to make a good impression to, to gain the respect of, of the Namibians. Part of it is also that Namibia simply has a stronger regulatory framework as well. Their um, their their mining ministry uh, and environmental ministry have had a, a long tradition of of regulating and monitoring other nuclear companies uh, or uranium mining companies that come into Namibia. And this, as the, when the Chinese came in, it, it was sort of just an extension of of this process that that they had had developed. So. It, so unfortunately, we only have a, a very limited case where we have two companies in, in two different countries, but, but it's, it's part of both. One, the, the company was much more involved uh, and aware of, uh, of, the, of the failures of, of some of the other mining companies, as well as the stronger government uh, aspect of Namibia. So those two companies, one is the China General Nuclear Power Company, that's CGN, as you were mentioning. Correct. Uh, they have a 90% share in the Husab mine. The Namibian government has a company called Epangelo Mining. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, and they have a 10% share. I think it's important for people to understand the importance of this mine. Uh, the Husab is the second largest uranium mine in the world. It has a 280 million ton uh, deposit that they believe will take about 20 years to fully mine. So this is a, I mean, this is a big, big find. We were speaking earlier uh, on a previous show with uh, New York Times reporter Brooke Larmer, and he recently wrote a cover story for the New York Times magazine where he went to the Husab mine, and he talked also with Namibia's finance minister, and there were growing concerns about Namibian sovereignty. Now, not necessarily in the context of the mine, but generally just in the context that the Chinese now have a very, very what's the word, kind of, you know, significant share of one of Namibia's largest exports. And there is concern that the deeper that the Namibians go with the Chinese, potentially it could affect their ability to manage their own sovereignty, or is what you people in the uh, in the academic world called agency. And that was the title of your paper. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that in terms of are these big multi-billion dollar investments in a country as small as Namibia jeopardizing Namibia's agency or sovereignty or their own destiny? 
Yeah, it's, I think it's a very complicated issue. This uh, The 10% stake from Ipangelo was actually um, – Either it was given by by the Chinese uh, on the encouragement of uh, of domestic actors, and they it was it was sort of Ipangelo's lifeline actually to to getting a stake in, in a mine. Namibia traditionally didn't have equity participation, so so in this regard, even just a ten percent stake really. Uh, gave some agency or some sovereignty to to the Namibians to have a controlling stake, much like what you know Botswana does in their diamond mines. Um, and, and right now, in an era of of sort of reduced prices, it does help Namibia's finances because it's reported. I unfortunately we we never got an answer, but it's reported that um, China right now is actually paying above market prices uh, for uranium production. Now, of course, when Husab comes to to full production and and if uranium prices increase and kind of go above what the Chinese have in this long-term contract, then then we really could see uh, risks to Namibian sovereignty because most of the most or all of this uranium is not actually tendered on international markets. It's it's or it's um, done through transfer pricing. Basically, um, the the producer Swakop Uranium, which is the the company in the Chinese company in Namibia, will sell the uranium to itself uh, in China. And there is a there's a real worry that especially if prices um, kind of rebounds that that the Chinese could have you know a ninety percent controlling a controlling stake over our you know what is a strategic resource in Namibia. So I think this remains to be seen, and it it could be um, partly to due to market forces, uh, and as well um, you know how much a lot of this demand in in China materializes for nuclear power. Um, is this is the uranium exported in the form of raw ore, or is there was there any kind of attempt by the Namibians to try and <clears throat> to try and position the like any form of of refining or processing facility in Namibia? Yeah, so they um, they did get uh, one processing plant. It's a uh, it's the sort of the first stage. It's conversion, but but the problem and and we actually have another paper on this is that uranium is a very very difficult commodity. To have it's it's you know it's very limited suppliers and buyers. Um, it's highly regulated by the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency, the IAEA, and without sort of being approved by international regulatory bodies, Namibia it simply can't move up the value chain. It can't um, actually do some of the more higher value added. Production. So while Namibia, it's sort of their long-term strategy, as far as I understand, to to be able to process more. At, currently, uh, they don't have the the ability or the permission to do so. Kobus, you know, we've talked a lot about over the past few shows about whether China's losing interest in Africa or is less engaged, and maybe it's buying oil and other resources from other parts of the world because, well, it's got options that it didn't have 10 or 15 years. I think uranium is one of these very interesting categories where it might be very, very actively engaged in Africa for a very, very long time and not subject to the same whims that other resources uh, may be victim to, especially as commodity prices remain very low. So it seems to me thinking about the strategic, the security, And then the environmental slash health concerns that are going on in China, all related to power and energy, that uranium is going to be very, very vital in the China-Africa relationship going forward in the next few years. 
I agree, and it, it's going to be it's going to be vital in complicated ways. You know, kind of as we mentioned at the beginning, there's there's increasing moves um, towards uh, more and more nuclear power reactors in Africa. Um, as someone who spent a lot of time in Japan, um, the aftermath, obviously, of of the Fukushima nuclear disaster can't be underestimated. You know, kind of the 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 level of horror and disruption that that Fukushima was has to always be kind of brought into into this conversation um, especially in you know in, in um, environments like in Africa where where governance is frequently an issue um, so I think this is going to be a very big complicated kind of thorny part of the China Africa relationship in the future uh, Peter last question for you tell us where we're going with this relationship the Niger Namibia uranium arrangement with China is China going to continue to to invest more or should we see this basically as what they've done and, and that's they're not going to do much more in the coming years well in the case of Niger it looks like that the Chinese haven't revived the project it's been sort of hasn't produced anything in the in the past few years and I think CNNC, the the national nuclear company or corporation, was was burned by that experience and and sort of has no interest in going back. Namibia, however, um, I think Husab Mine will be one of either the largest or second largest produ- uh, producer of uranium in in a very short time. And, and CNNC, the the company that that was in Niger, actually has made investments in other uh, Namibian uranium mines. Uh, and there's there's some sort of um, there's some speculation, speculative mines that, that have happened in, in Namibia. And I think uh, very soon, if, if China really goes through with, with this nuclear power uh, program, power plant program, you know, Africa has a lot of uranium and it will always be on their radar. Um, you know, they're also looking at other places in Malawi and South Africa, the other two countries in Africa that have um, at least proven uranium deposits. And I think we will see... Um, continuing interest by the Chinese in in uranium production as part of their energy diversity uh, initiative. Peter Volberding is a PhD candidate in the government department at Harvard University. He's also the co-author with Jason Warner of a working paper series at the China-Africa Research Initiative uh, at Johns Hopkins University in Washington. The title of the paper is China and Uranium, Comparative Possibilities for Agency and Statecraft in Niger and Namibia. It's one of these topics that doesn't get a lot of attention. It's a little bit on the wonky academic side, but it's very, very worthwhile reading if you want to kind of dive deeper into China's extraordinarily complex natural resource agreements and partnerships with China. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and hope we can bring you back on the show. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. And for for Cobus Van Staten, I'm Eric Olander. That'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another edition. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. 